Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Thanks for coming. Welcome to uh, Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected, a show that shows you the way in which everything has a history, and those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of the orange, the history of the orange is in fact all about the gunpowder plot, or the history of cats is all about ancient Egypt and the Russian Revolution. I'm quite interested in dogs at the moment, doing a lot of dog stuff. Dogs are all about medieval soundscapes. It's all about what castles sounded like in the 13th century. We're starting to realise that different dogs made different noises at different times of day. It's the kind of history that's really opening up our minds and helping us understand the past in a completely different way. We have something very exciting for you in a minute, but we're keeping it as a secret. But one of the things it got me thinking about was the history of the mantelpiece. I hadn't told you about this yet. The history of the mantelpiece is all about memory, masculinity and conversation. It's all about 18th century gentlemen on their mantelpieces, pontificating and talking away. Hmm. We have to write that. The history of the mantelpiece. The history of the... Yeah. Well, well uh, uh, we'll do a podcast on the history of the do. mantelpiece. So throughout all of this, what I want you to do is to come up with ideas for unexpected histories, things that you didn't expect to have a history, and then at the end of it, we'll see if we can apply our brains to some of your ideas and see what we come up with. And I think part of what we do is very much about exploring the ways that you think about the past. And we are really keen to help people stretch their historical imagination. We think that there's even a history of... Nothing. There's a history of absence. There's a history of silence. There isn't certainly there? is a history of silence, closely connected to the Catholic Church. Um, and yeah, the history of things that you don't talk about. Exactly. Mm, the history of editing. Uh, the history of collecting. Mm. Uh, we've we've both come from the British Museum, and I got there at five o'clock and had a walk through their amazing rooms uh, full of collections. So, what is the history of what is the unexpected history? of collecting. So who collects, knickknacks. why people who collect. collects? Who collects what? Yeah. I want to do bones. Does anyone collect anything here? We've got a collectors here? You always one here. What do you collect? Ah, that's amazing. You're not a collector, you're a hoarder. No, you collect, you collect memories. memories. Do you write them down? How do you, what, what? Cool. I used to collect hats. I collect corks. Corks? Would you believe corks? Do you write on them? What yes. They're, what, no, what they're no, from? no, no. They are, it's from, they are corks from memorable bottles. Okay. So I have, the, I have corks from my wedding. Have you always done that? I mean, I think one uh, of these things... No, is it, I've like, not always been... No, not since I was born. Uh, I've, <laughs> how from how about many times have you been married, 18, James? <laughs> uh, I've been married once, very happily. <laughs> 
So I've coll- I used to collect hats, but I don't collect hats anymore. But I think there's a, there's a, that's an interesting history. I think people change what they collect. I think you're an in- inherent collector and you'll, ad- you'll adapt to what you collect. Anyway, we're not going to talk about collecting. We're going to talk today about chimneys. Seems like a very London-y thing to do, and it's something I've always, always wanted to do. But before we talk about chimneys, we're going to talk a little bit about how we came up with the idea, what the idea is, and, um, and, and what we've done in the last year. I mean, we, we started a year ago. And we've done over 50 different subjects now. And it, it came up with an idea of mine. 58. Have you done 58? 58. Oh, God. Zebras was one of my favourite ones. Be, mm, yes. And the history of holes. The history of toilets. Yeah, that The history was good. of toilets is, is, is actually uh, political history. It's high political history of Henry VIII and the groom of the stool all the way through to popular political history and dirty protest mm. in Northern Ireland in the maze prisons. Anyway, we have to stop him talking. Otherwise Sorry. All night. It started off when I was leading a tour around HMS Victory. And I, was, I am kind of, at my heart, a maritime and naval historian. And every now and again I get roped into, into doing these kind of cultural history tours, which is very good fun. And I've been to Victory an awful lot. And I was taking a group around and I was explaining about the width of the gun decks and all the number of guns and all the sails and everything about it. And I, I got to this part of the ship, the stern where there's this magnificent gallery of windows. And I, I turned around and I suddenly realised that I couldn't tell the people I was touring around HMS Victory why there was a massive window on the back of a ship. It's insane, if you think about it. It's like having a conservatory on the back of a tank. <laughs> but not only did, did the British think it was a good idea, but the French thought it was a good idea, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Americans, everyone thought it was a good idea. What we'll do is we'll have... The sides of the ship, they'll be three feet thick, right? So everyone's protected from gunfire in battles. But at the stern, windows be fine. <laughs> yeah, not fine at all. Not so only that. people could see. Well, was, well, this is the whole point. And I suddenly realised I couldn't explain it. I had no way of, of actually thinking about... The, I didn't have any kind of format in my head for explaining why windows were on the back of a ship. So I went away and looked into it a bit. And... There are all sorts of different explanations. No one's written one, but it's very clear to me that you can't explain it unless you understand the history of looking. Okay? And windows are all to do with the view. It's all to do with the cost of windows, the cost of manufacturing glass at the time. It was very rare. It was very expensive. It's all to do with the Enlightenment. So if you think about the people who are actually behind those windows, it's the admirals, it's the captains, it's the officers... So all of the sailors, they, they live in the dark. And what's happening is that on the 18th century naval, people are actually controlling your access to daylight. And that's a very significant part of living on board a ship. So it's not just enough to be enlightened. You have to demonstrate to the rest of the world as you sail around it, blowing seven tons of hell out of your enemies, that you're doing it in a quite a civilised way because you're, you're an enlightened man. In that respect, it's all to do with their fancy hats and their uniforms. You have to be seen to be enlightened you had to be seen to be civilized and that's one explanation for it this was our very first podcast the history of windows when sam came up to me with this idea i said absolute nonsense the history of windows is all about the 30 years war the defenestration at prague actually throwing people out of windows i didn't even know there was a word called defenestration but apparently there is always defenestrated i was in a very boring tedious meeting the other day at which we were we opened a window when we were going to chuck somebody out of it. <laughs> but this led to a conversation. Well, this, led to a, this led to a text to me uh, saying, James, I'm about to start a new uh, podcast series. Could you appear as a, as a regular guest? So I said, let's, let's meet up and have coffee. Um, and, I said, and we started talking about this. And I said, well, it's exactly like the history of the orange. The Which is when I orange. knew I was onto something. The history <laughs> of the orange is about the gunpowder plot. And Sam sort of looked at me, sort of, you know, oddly. And I said, no, 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 it's all about the gunpowder plot. And I told him this story about the Jesuit priest, John Gerard, who many of you probably know about, uh, who was locked up in the fleet prison. Um, And he manages to get um, oranges smuggled in. And the oranges are wrapped in paper, okay? And he used the paper to write secret messages on. Um, he used the orange itself in lots of different ways. And one of this is a Catholic priest. One of the things he did was he peeled the orange, and the orange became part of his Catholic practice. He formed it into a rosary. He also preserved the, 
he, he used the flesh of the orange in order to bribe the jailer to get secret messages sent out. And he preserved the orange juice to actually write in invisible ink on the paper that had come in and had that smuggled out through female supporters outside of the prison. And then he sort of latterly escapes and gets involved in the gunpowder plot. So this led to uh, two initial podcasts and then a, a whole flurry yeah. of podcasts. It's so been endless. We? we basically sort of drive around sort of going, we should do the history of fish or whatever. And we, we basically have no idea what that history is going to be, but that's the whole point. It's the opposite of what you expect a historian to do. So you expect a historian to say, oh, well, actually, I've been studying fish for the last 25 years. I know more about fish than anyone we, else. We, just we know went, nothing about fish. We just went to a fascinating uh, talk by our history hip brothers, uh, Dan Snow, interviewing the guy who had just curated the Scythians exhibition at the British Museum. And looking at this talk, um, up came this, this PowerPoint that showed tattoos. So we're looking at Scythian tattoos that have been in the permafrost in the sort of Russian steppes. And the, the way that a tattoo survives is basically, it's this person's skin. Um, so it's the skin of an individual. You know, um, what was this, 400, 400 BC? Yeah, they're properly cool tattoos, and they were all hidden. They, so they didn't cool tattoo their faces, or their hands, or their feet. So, or, but but they, they, these guys live in Siberia, right? So they're wearing clothes all the time, but they're covered in tattoos. Yeah. Anyway, the, the point is... But we want to do tattoos. We now want to do the history of tattoos or the history of skin. And I think one of the, the real missions we're on is to make people realise that history is an immensely more creative process than it has been presented as for generations. So up to now, you have to learn your dates, you have to learn everything about a subject, and we say, no, that's not true. What you have to do is you have to learn to be able to think and question history, and it's not about having the answers, it's about asking the questions, and it makes history massively exciting. And one of the great things about it is not only do you find out that everything has a history, but there's another very significant point to what we do, and that is to demonstrate that everything is linked to each other in unexpected ways. So James was saying, okay, the orange is all about the gunpowder plot, but then went on to explain about how the orange was used as a rosary and how they used it to, to write in secret ink. So actually, the orange is also about, it's also about the history of codes. It's about codes, the history of secret writing. Spies, religion. Yeah. It's also about laundry. Why? Uh, orange juice was used to perfume laundry in mm. the Renaissance. So what, what you can do is you can jump from one subject to another subject, just like you do when you Google something. You can go, oh, I'm going to go over here, or oh, I'm going over there. You can do it in history, and it is hugely rewarding. Let, let me jump to another subject. What have we been doing this summer, Sam? Uh, we've been writing a book. We have been writing a book. Which um, is going to be a very good book. <laughs> we've been so excited about our podcast, we've decided to write a book. We've chosen 30 different subjects. And actually, the last few podcasts we've done, we decided to focus on the whole business of writing books. So we've done the history of the book, yep. the history of the pen, the history of the signature, the history of paper, the history of... How to be a historian. How to be a historian. Ooh, be a historian. We've, we've, done, done, we've well. done codes, yep. which is coming out. Yep, I want to do the up. seal. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole, you know, walk into Staples or a stationery store, and I want to do the entire history of that. <laughs> this is probably because I, my, my, my doctoral work was on letters, uh, and my first eight books were in that sort of area. So it's a bit of a so out of, fetish. Out of, you know, it's, it's been quite fun. What, what's right, been, writing, what's, what's, what's been, I'm asking you. Oh, asking me. Yeah. Beards. What? I've <laughs> become obsessed with beards. Yeah. In two ways. Well, in lots of different ways. Um, <laughs> Beards are, beards are connected to the Crimean War. How? Um, they're connected to the Crimean War because um, during the 18th century, beards went out of fashion. Most men were, were clean-shaven. It didn't sort of sit with, with the sort of um, Enlightenment sensibilities. And um, troops weren't allowed, soldiers weren't allowed to um, be um, you know, unclean-shaven. It's the history of facial and control. Then, and then it's the history of facial control, but then the Crimean War comes on, and because it's so cold, uh, they're suddenly allowed to grow these sort of luxuriant, um, you know, hedges on their, on, their, on their chins. They all come home as heroes, and it kicks off... Oh, it becomes fashionable. It becomes fashionable. But I'm also interested in bearded ladies uh, as well. And there's this tremendous anecdote, any of you familiar with your Montaigne, 
a wonderful anecdote I'm where he describes a so sort of um, uh, 16th century uh, French uh, philosopher and intellectual, and he describes this wonderful anecdote about a French peasant girl uh, who's running along, um, and she's, she's chasing after a rabbit and leaps over, uh, and uh, male genitalia pops out of her. <laughs> um, and so it's all about gender bending. Uh, and and she, she, um, she grows a sort of luxuriant uh, beard after that. And, and a beard, the beard is therefore associated with masculinity. Well, I found out the beards are also with coloured beards. I didn't realise this at all. Blue beard? Well, exactly. So I was thinking that uh, my, my, we used to go on holiday in Cornwall. My dad used to make up pirate stories on the way back from the beach. It was a very long walk. And they got quite boring. But they were all about pirates with coloured beards. It was all about black beard, blue beard, red beard. And then I discovered that there's actually a thing about coloured beards in history. So blue beard was like one of the arch baddies of fairy tales. And does anyone know the story of blue beard? Okay, so blue beard is... is it's not unexpected, you see. Well, <laughs> blue beard is a baddie, right? And he, he's, a, he's a handsome man, apart from his massive blue beard, which, which everyone thinks is a bit weird. Um, Marries this girl, and he says, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave you all of my house and all of my riches. I've just got to go away for a couple of weeks. Doesn't tell her where she's going. But before I go, he is a key to the cellar. Oh, God. So whatever you do, do not go down into the cellar with this mysterious key. So he legs it for two weeks, and this poor woman sits and goes, I can't go anywhere with the key, and then sort of finds herself at the cellar door, opens up the cellar door, and it is, it is full of Bluebeard's murdered wives. In, it's unbelievably horrific. So this is sort of a 16th, 17th century story. But um, Does he find out? Proper serial killer. I mean, they're like bones and like pools of blood and everything. Does he find out she's been down Yeah, 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 yeah. So what happens is that she goes, shit. Runs back upstairs, locks the door, but the door's got blood on it from his murdered oh. wives, and she can't wash the blood off. So Bluebeard comes back and says, oh, hello, darling, have you had a nice time? And she's like, oh, I haven't had a nice time at all. <laughs> um, can I have my key back? And he's like, oh, a key. Oh, it's covered in blood. Have you been down to my naughty cellar? And she's like, yes, I have been down to your naughty cellar. So he then tells her, she said, well, the punishment for going to my naughty cellar is that you're going to be murdered by me and end up with all of my dead wives. It's quite a long story. Anyway, she gets rescued by her brothers. It turns out that Bluebeard's a real nasty man, and the colour of his beard is massively significant in France in the 17th century, which got me on to studying Blackbeard, uh, the famous pirate Blackbeard, and a similar sort of thing. There are loads of baddies with different coloured beards throughout history. Of all the chapters we've done so far, which is your favourite? Um, we've, done, we've done lots. We've done the lean, we've done the hand, we've done... Um, I like the lean, because I just came up with it, and I thought, that sounds brilliant, but how the hell are we, we going to do we it? We had a walk round a cricket pitch with several pints of beer, and as we were walking back home, Sam suddenly looked at a tree <laughs> that was leaning and said we should do the lean, and that we should write And it. then we both agreed it, and then we both sat down at home and went, shit, what are we actually going to do? So the lean is all about... Um, Wonky buildings. Medieval buildings, right? So it's the transition between... Has anyone been to the Shambles in York? It's like one of the most, it's the best preserved medieval historic streets in Britain. So all of the buildings are wonky, they're all made out of wood, they're hilarious. So it's the difference between that and then somewhere like the Champs-Élysées in Paris. And what, what's happening, it's the history of 19th century architecture. What they're doing is they're, they're knocking down these dark, narrow, wonky buildings. They're replacing them with huge, wide boulevards, straight buildings, and right angles. So it's actually the history of the architectural right angle but it's also to do with old people and walking sticks yep and and you didn't know what to do and i said i found a photograph of marlon brando who's like this so it's about hollywood and, sort of uh, and we suddenly realized that that yeah in hollywood in the 50s rather than having your photograph taken like this people started to have their photograph taken like this but then my wife said that's far too obvious you need to do something sort of you know slightly more unexpected so i came up with with um medieval thuggery uh, so, and so it's about leaning on people. It's about gangsters. Yeah. It's about so. It's a female deportment as well. It's about people walking around with books on their heads. Yes. Finishing schools. Yes. Have you ever walked around with a book on your head? No. See, that could go into the history. No, of and books. I shan't. You're not no. going to get me to do that on stage. If you listen to the podcast, I occasionally sing <laughs> on podcast. There are some songs in tonight. Well, we're doing chimneys. Can you show. do chim chimney? No. 
please, you've got a very good baritone. I do, but I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know the words. And he's modest as I well. I don't know the words. No. Um, so, so what else are we going to tell them before we kick off with chimneys? Holes. Uh, the history of holes was brilliant. It was good, yes. You're not so convinced about that? No, I love holes. Holes is about sex, uh, but not in the way that you think. It's about prying through holes. There are lots of records in 16th century consistory courts. The, 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 the sort of early modern church was basic, basically policed everyone's sort of moral and social behaviour. And so you've got lots of sort of depositions where people are describing adulterous acts. You've got people spying through through holes. It's also about the history of the hand as well. What Nature's handmaid. And mm. There's a sort of the history of onanism. Yes. Um, where did you go with, with, with holes? Um, hell, wasn't it? Hell. Yeah, so people actually trying to find the entrance into hell, which is quite interesting. So there, there are people charting the... There are basically loads of volcanoes in Greece that they thought were the actual entrance to hell. So there are maps that tell you how to get to hell from, I don't know, sort of mid-13th to 14th centuries. They're amazing. And it's all to do with drilling holes and things like that as well. Holes in the ground. Anyway, so there's, um, that's a kind of chaotic, technicolour explosion of what we do and what we have been doing. Um, so now, I think we are going to do chimneys. chimneys. Whose idea was it to do chimneys? I think it was your idea to do... Sam always comes up with the zany ideas. <laughs> I always try and get it back to sort of, you know, manuscripts or books or pens or letters. <laughs> I could and do Sam the yawn. Come up with zebras or, you know, the something snore. like that. My idea was lions. Lions are brilliant. Yes. They're all about rubbish tips in Oklahoma. So when we anyway. came up with this idea of, of chimneys, we sent the, um, the idea to our publisher. And our publisher thought that chimneys was all about Pink Floyd, the Industrial Revolution and Father Christmas... Uh, but it's much more than that. It's about shoes. It is about shoes. It's and about shoes. Yep. What else is it about? We've got a few other things. It is about explore. beards. <laughs> Everything with James is about beards. Well, at the moment. There's a connection. The the, the 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 chimneys chapter feeds into the beards chapter oh, okay, okay. in a very interesting way. But this is the problem. We end up doing one subject and get really really obsessed by it and find out that it's that everything is to do with beards That's or, or some hands. Beard. Yeah, it is. It's also about chimney pots. Oh, yes. The history yep. of chimney pots, chimney pots which are no longer really needed uh, unless you have a... And there we are, it's about the mantelpiece and ah. conversation. But if I, if I said to you, what is the history of chimneys about? How do you start thinking, how do you start, start spitballing about the history of chimneys? Well, um, the first thing with me, the first thing I thought about was rhubarb. Uh, because right. my mum used to grow... Oh, forcing, forcing rhubarb forcing up a chimney. Rhubarb. Yeah, so, so you, do you know what that means? You, if you're growing rhubarb, you put a chimney over it, and it grows up towards the light, so it grows straight. And that means you have straight rhubarb. So um, my mum used to have chimneys all over the garden, really. So for chimneys, my association with chimneys is gardening, really. And secondly is, um, is, is those beautiful, decorated brick chimneys you get at Hampton Court. Oh, uh, yes. The other yes. kind of Tudor chimneys, yes. which are really, really interesting. That is all about the invention of comfort. So the, there is a sort of, there is a really serious history about the, about the sort of um, development of the chimney, which is the, the sort of architectural development of, of houses. So the way in which you move from an open fire and an open hearth with, the, with Tudor chimneys like that and into the sort of 18th and 19th century, you imagine your sort of Victorian house with chimneys in every room. And what you have effectively is the development of you know, more comfortable living space. The Victorians effectively uh, invented comfort. Well, the thing is with the Tudor chimneys, I think they're, they're brick, the ones at Hampton Court. Does anyone know what I'm... Can you picture Hampton Court? Yes. So red brick, lots and lots of tiny bricks, all kind of put together in a very intricate way. And it looks suspiciously like it's got too many chimneys, Hampton Court, but that's exactly because it does have too many chimneys. Not all of those chimneys are attached to fireplaces. So the amount of chimneys you have is a sign of status. Um, Chimney tax. The chimney tax. Is that like the window tax? Quite probably, yes. I like the window tax. I've always been do. really interested in the window tax. Does anyone know what the window tax is? It's an 18th century thing. People got tax windows, got tax windows, got bricked up. I quite want to buy old buildings which have been window taxed and to re-release the window. Exeter is full of them. Is it? Exeter is full of Yeah. After we did the, the thing on windows, uh, I wandered around Exeter just photographing Paris as windows. well. I know that. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, chimneys are all about evil fairies. So the chimney is a kind of... Um, is a sort of liminal space within the household 
that connects the natural and the supernatural world. It's the place that evil forces come down. They also go under doors, through cracks in windows. Imagine how terrified his two young daughters are. I, I at, haven't. At they, I, 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 won't, I won't let them listen to this. But, but you know, you, and we're going to talk about this a little later on. Um, but, you know, it is sort of seen as one of those sort of entry points into the household. You know, we're going to talk about it in several ways. We're going to talk about the way that it connects to Father Christmas and Father Christmas coming down the chimney. We're going to talk about the invention of Santa Claus, a sort of 19th century invention of Santa Claus coming down the chimney. But it also has much more sinister things. And there are these things that I'm going to talk about called middens, which are these little sort of compartments, sort of rubbish tips at the back of chimneys, full of all sorts of things. Yeah. But I, I think the key point there is that is that a lot of histories there are there's always more than one side to it. And it can be warming and comforting. It can be frightening and unsettling. And chimneys is one of the, the most wonderful examples of that. I think. I think on the one hand you've got yeah. I mean that's brilliant. You've got on the one hand you've got warmth. You've got comfort. You've got sort of productivity. And on the other hand you've got something that is much darker, more satanic, um, and really horrific. You know, in in terms of sort of child labour, in term, you could take you could connect chimneys to the Holocaust and the chimneys at Auschwitz. Mm. So you could see how it would go in all sorts of but in, in, all sorts in, of in ways. simple terms, the chimney is warm and cold. So if yeah. you uh, if you go into a big medieval house and the fire isn't on, it's freezing. It is not a good place to be. But then if the fire is on, it is a nice warm yep. place. Yep. So my initial thoughts w- were along the lines of Hampton Court and rhubarb both of which I'm sure are completely fascinating. But then, what, this way we work, really, we kind of go, this is what I think, and then, and then sit down and give it a bit more thought and um, do some proper research. Well, there's, I think there's, I mean, there's the process about how, how we, do it? there's the process about how we do the podcasts. The way we come up with it is we, we sort of decide on several topics that we're <laughs> going to do, and we record them... Um, spontaneously we don't know what each other is going to say we each go off in our separate directions and think in different ways and then come together and record and so it is genuinely spontaneous writing the book was was more difficult because you know it obviously can't be that kind of you know you can't you can't do that kind of thing on the written page so what we've been working at is how we craft the kind of the so that it actually tells a story so that it actually makes sense. Yeah, and everything has to link. link and everything to has to has to sort of flow together. Yeah. When I finally sat down and decided what I wanted to write about with chimneys, um, I used to go on family holidays a lot in where's that? Cornwall. Very good. Poldark country. Poldark country uh, in the southwest. So we both live in Devon, um, both live in Exeter, but I'd still spend a lot of my time in Cornwall. And the, the, the landscape of Cornwall is, is truly wonderful. And if you've spent any time there, you'll, you'll know about views like this. What I like about this particularly is the idea of chimneys in a landscape, which I'm going to talk, give two examples of, essentially. I like the fact that they kind of demand attention. It's not a sort of passive thing that sits there. They are, they're wonderful things. They're quite like castles on top of a hill. So a lot of people, after I did my series on castles for the BBC, asked me if I was worried about the survival of castles or I was worried about people's interest in castles in the future. And I fundamentally am not at all. Because castles, and I'm going to come to chimneys in a minute, they, they stand there and they demand attention. They say to you, what the hell am I doing here? Why did someone spend 15 years, 20 years building me? Why have I survived 800 years to still be here? And the power of that structure in the landscape, I think, is wonderful. And they really do speak to me. And I am exactly of the same mind when it comes to chimneys, particularly in the West Devon and Cornwall. And in fact, that power has worked, and it's worked spectacularly. These, the the, the mining chimneys of... Devon and West Cornwall are now World Heritage Sites. Okay, so they are deemed as significant as Stonehenge, Canterbury Cathedral, the Taj Mahal, Machu Picchu, 
Yeah. And uh, the Acropolis, I mean, you could, it, they're amazing. They, they are that important. So I love the fact that they stand there and they, they put their hands up and they say, come and, come and speak to me. And I think it's the contrast between the very uh, sharp, visibly man-made lines of these things against the wild ruggedness of the Cornish landscape. They're not embedded in cities. They're just out there, and you cannot but wander over and go and have a look at them. And I saw this when I was with my son up on Dartmoor yeah. a couple of weeks ago. I was taking him to a rugby match, and we saw one. He was like, oh, what's that? Uh, and I said, I'd say, Jimmy, let's stop and have a look. And off we went and we had a look. And other people were doing that. You could see the paths which had been trodden across Dartmoor to go and look at this thing. And that's, I think, people kind of sleepwalking towards history, which yep. is a brilliant phrase. I think I should write that down. There's also sleepwalking towards the... Um, history. Was history. history. Sleepwalking towards history. Yeah. As I'm sleepwalking through yeah. this. Don't steal um, my phrase. I think... No, no, no. I, I, shall, I shall... You can... Um, you anyway, I've got to tell them about mining first, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell them about the... the, the darker side of mines. That's true. So anyway, it's to do with industry, it's to do with the fact that we have had um, enormous amounts of copper and tin, and they transformed the world in the 18th to the 19th centuries. So for me, these chimneys in particular tell a story about the Industrial Revolution and also about the British Empire, because a lot of the copper that they were mining out of here, they used to sheathe the hulls of sailing ships, which meant that the ships weren't eaten by something called the Teredo Navalis, which is the shipworm, which meant that our ships were stronger and faster for longer, which meant we could keep more ships at sea for longer, which meant our navy was bigger. And so it all comes down to these people who were miners. And yep. tin is all to do, um, well, to, to, you keep copper and tin alloys, you can make gunmetal. Yep. For yep. one, to Big Ben. Big Ben is made out of copper and tin. The, the, the bell from Big Ben, anyway. Yep. And um, tin, making tin cans. So the history, Food of preservation. The, the history of the chimney is about the Industrial Revolution. And I think Sam's point there is a really good one. It's, about the, it's also about the significance of the Southwest during the 18th and 19th century. And about two-thirds... Did you know this? Two-thirds of the world's copper in the 18th and 19th century, came from the southwest. It was one of the biggest... That industry was one of the biggest employers in that, in that region. Yeah. And you have, the, you have, you have sort of 3,000 people being employed in some of these, in some of these mines. Between, and about, I think I read a statistic, 95% of young people were employed in these mines. And the conditions were appalling for them. But the, the global significance, just quickly, it's like saying two-thirds of the world's computer chips come from Cornwall today. Yep. That would be yep. the equivalent yep. of what they were producing. It's absolutely in the vanguard of the Industrial Revolution, but there is a horrific you know, personal cost for those ordinary miners. And I think one of the important things when... And, and this is something that the World Heritage Site does really well. And by the work that I do at Plymouth University with a different hat on, a heritage hat, actually works with them, uh, works with that um, World Heritage Organization um, about, their, about their projects. But one of the things that is really sort of key here is that they are, they are remembering the history from below of ordinary miners. And that is, in, that is sort of in, that absolutely in this. The life expectancy of a miner was about five years in in Cornwall. It was about five years. The average age was about 39. Um, a Red, Ro Red Ruth miners who went over to um, South Africa and worked in the, worked in the, the, the gold uh, industry there, um, their life expectancy was about four years. And the drills that these people used to actually sort of extract the quartz from the rock were called widow makers. Were they? Did you know that? Because no, but I know something so else that was called a widowmaker. Oh, what? It was a, um, it's, a, it's a block off a main sheet of a sailing warship. So the lowest Ooh. yard, the lards were absolutely enormous. You get like 100 sailors along them. And the sails were, were just completely enormous. So um, probably the, the, the height of this room and maybe the whole width of it. And attached to one corner of those was a rope. And attached to that was a block. And the rope went through it three times. And it swung around at head height. And um, it was called a widowmaker because it would take your head off. So I, the history of widowmakers. Widow, widow that's makers. really weird. Goodness me. Accidental death. Yeah. <laughs> um, Where are we going now? Ah, uh, yes. yes. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is, this is genuinely this is one of my most famous favorite things. Um, it's a chimney. It's a chimney, but it's one of these really cool chimneys because it's on the floor. And... Um, you know, when I was talking about about historical objects that cry out to be investigated, this is this is the best example of it. It's something called the King's Pipe. In uh, it's on the corner of Falmouth Quay, um, and I became really obsessed with this thing. I actually wrote a my master's thesis on it. I dedicated most of the year of my life to, to this damn thing. Um, so you had to bring it in tonight. I did have to bring it in tonight. Yeah, so, so the point about it is it says, you know, what on earth is a chimney doing attached to the ground? What it says on it is, not, is only half of the story, but it was basically used for burning contraband tobacco, which had been seized by the Customs and Excise um, Service. So it's a monument that's actually massively embedded in the history of smuggling and illicit economies. Illicit economies are absolutely fascinating, um, and they're a real problem for historians. So, so historians will kind of go through the records, and they'll say, so this much material came into the country, this much tax was taken out of the country, and this much material was consumed. Okay, that, those are the official records, right? We all know that's not how it works. So there's old Peter, who lives down the road. He's flogging a bit on the side. There's someone else doing something on the side. There's someone else getting some brandy in from France. And actually, the picture you get as a historian is massively different from what actually happened. And this kind of chimney really, really gets you wired into thinking about that. Now, what's really important about this is, okay, so it was burning seized contraband tobacco, right? And it's called the king's pipe. Both of those things are really important. So it's huge. And imagine that, burning tobacco. There would be enormous billowing clouds of black smoke pouring out of this thing, okay? So then you stop and think, right, what, what, what are they doing? And then you realise that the, the position of it's massively important. Falmouth's a weird place. You can't actually see the harbour if you approach it from the land. You can't, you just, you, it takes, you have to kind of wiggle all the way down and around to it and find it. But it's the first thing, that pipe is the first thing you see if you approach Falmouth by sea. And then you think about where Falmouth is. So Falmouth is the most significant large deep water port in the west of England. So it's actually the first harbour you see in England, which means that that pipe's the first thing you see in the first harbour in England. So that pipe's probably one of the most significant national monuments of the 1740s, and no one knows anything about it. But Except if you, you. If, but from me, and yes. I could talk to you for three hours about this brilliant thing. But basically, I will just finish... We have 53 minutes. I will just say, <laughs> the... Uh, Imagine the smoke pouring out of that. It's about the government and the king in particular using the landscape to teach people a lesson. So it's actually part of the same story of hanging outlaws, gibbeting pirates, burning witches, impaling the heads of traitors on traitors' gates. There's, there's a wonderful story here of, of how... The government controlled people in the 18th century. Boom! It's visual propaganda. Visual propaganda. Move us on. No, I can't because it's in the 1740s. I want to talk a bit more about that. It's all about, all about Jacobite, Jacobitism as well. And it's the King's Pipe, not the Queen's Pipe. Queen Anne. Move us on. Move oh, us on. For God's sake. I want to talk about things stuck in chimneys. Oh, you've all got to go to Falmouth and go and look at the King's Pipe. <laughs> Sam discovered this, didn't you? Yes. Um, this was discovered in the 19... 19- <laughs> No, and recently, fairly recently, 2015. So someone poking around in a chimney. We're now going to be talking about chimneys as archives. You, this is the coolest thing you've ever heard, right? And fairies. Yeah, not, no, this is cooler than fairies because this is no, my no. idea, right? He's going to talk about fairies. fairies. Oh, no, you're all going to vote about how exciting chimneys as archives is, right? So someone was builders renovating a house, poking around, poking around, look up the chimney, and they find that. 
Okay, this is one of only three surviving maps of the world from 1600. Okay? Dutch map. Dutch map, yep. right? At the time, it would have. They're, they're, it's huge, so it's like um, you know, it's more than two meters long, meter wide, massive thing. At the time, it would have been the talking point of a house, of a street, of a city, of a region. Really, really important. And at some point, this magnificent map kind of fell from power and was stuffed up a chimney to stop the draft. But it raises the wonderful question of what people have found up chimneys. Yep. But if you're, if you're really interested in this, go to the National Library of Scotland website and have a look at this. And there are some brilliant videos about how the team there, the conservation team, has basically put it together yep. again. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me is finding old documents in places that you don't expect them. So one of the books I'm writing alongside Histories of the Unexpected uh, is a book on archives at the moment, archives and gender and sort of archives as, as power. But I'm really interested in the discovery of documents. Uh, one of the best stories that I've got is Wadham College, Oxford, um, a, they found a 17th century letter down, <laughs> down under the floorboards uh, from a mother uh, to her son in about, 17, in about, in about 1620. Um, but we find all sorts of things stuffed at the back of chimneys. Um, and I don't know, I don't, the survival of documents I find quite difficult to sort of understand, whether it is that people have thrown documents away and the sort of draft of the chimney has sort of sucked them up and they've been sort of kept, or whether it's in fact that there are secret compartments in chimneys to hide things in. I think part of it is, part of it is that. Or chimneys also acted as, 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 as rubbish dumps. And there's a huge project uh, called Concealed Revealed that is basically tracking all the weird and wonderful things that people are finding on a sort of day-to-day -day basis around the country that include documents uh, like this, like the map, but also that include things like shoes or cats stuffed up a chimney. And now part this takes us back, I know, scare cats. Scare cats are amazing. You find, um, I, we're doing the history of cats. So the, yeah. I found out that loads of people, loads of builders all the time find cats hidden in walls and up chimneys. But not just like a dead cat, like cats that are posed yeah. in like weird positions, like with, with, with mice and rats. Like, like a scarecrow, but a scare cat. So you, you it's kind of like a sort of um, you know medieval burglar alarm. A sort of you know, <laughs> don't you think? Oh, I don't think they make any noise. Though. Well, it wouldn't make any noise, but but the idea of a well, burglar alarms don't necessarily have to make. They can be fake burglar alarms true, on on true. on on how that's a. So tell us about shoes, James. So t well, what I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to go back to my idea of this of the chimney as this sort of liminal space, this sort of connection between the natural and the supernatural. So the the, the the sort of portal that evil spirits would come down. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this, this is part of superstition. It gets us into things like the Reformation. It gets us into popular religion. And so throughout history, from about the Bronze Age, Bronze Age onwards, and you can, you can see that in archaeological uh, finds, people would leave things, objects or dead animals in various part, places around the home in order to ward off evil spirits. But particularly around um, the chimneys. Some of them, uh, particularly in chimneys, and some of them are shoes. There's a 17th century National Trust property in Snowdonia National Park, which a few years ago, they discovered about 100 shoes at the back of, at the, at the, back of the chimney. Yeah, and, they've, and somebody has now. They've, they, they're actually... They're actually preserved, boxed up, and somebody is going through cataloguing them, doing all sorts of all sorts of you know painstaking analysis to Doris, actually, have, to actually have no. to actually have a look at this. But you know they're there they're there for a reason, and there that. are there are um, I'll give you some examples of people who of spirits that would go down chimneys um, in English and Scottish folklore brownies. Um, brownies would enter the household at night. Brownies you had to befriend. Uh, brownies would enter the household at night and carry sort of car and carry out chores, a bit like Dobby in, in Harry Potter. Or the borrowers. If any of you, you were free. Yeah, all the all the all the borrowers. Or there's in Gaelic tradition there is a, a bodach, um, which is a bogeyman that would come down the chimney 
and would t take off naughty children. So this was a sort of story that you'd, that you'd tell your children in order to you know, be good or else the bodak will come and get you. Now all of this, we're gonna, in, a, in a bit, we're going to sort of follow this through and have a look at and connect it to Father Christmas coming down a chimney. Um, which leads us to something that you discovered. Well, you yeah. didn't discover it. No, it's another one. It's, it's a wonderful... The history of the sneeze. We should do the history of the sneeze. <laughs> we have, we've done the history of the fart, which is fascinating. It is. The sneeze, the burp. We will do the sneeze. Sneezes are great. Dear Daddy Christmas. Comes back to the chimney of the archive. Um, and so one of the things that historians find regularly up chimneys are letters to Father Christmas. Um, this is from 1870 or something? Found in Dublin. Dear Daddy Christmas, will you please bring me these things? A fort, a cannon, a box of soldiers and Indians, uh, chocolates, chockies, chocolate essences, a, a boat, is that a boat? A book and handkerchief, book, book, yours truly. Um, and there is a Be wonderful, short. wonderful collection um, of these, these items that have been discovered in chimneys. I've got, I've got a, another quote here I'd like to read you out. It's, it's so breathlessly wonderful. I'm not sure I can find it. Uh, I want a baby doll and a waterproof with a hood and a pair of gloves and a toffee apple and a gold penny and a silver sixpence and a long toffee. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. 1911. Um, as, as sources for um, historians, they're wonderful because they, they reveal... Um, the innocence chil of childhood. Well, children's hopes and sometimes fears as well. So, uh, yeah, these, these things are burned. So there are other letters that survive which have been told to burn. So you, you'd be interested yep. in this because of yeah, secret yeah. letters. So of, often, you'd, you'd, if, if you were received a letter that was significant or secret or something like that, it would say, please burn at the end. So people would chuck it in the fire, and it wouldn't burn. It would get taken up by the, by the updraft and then survive there and be rediscovered in 2017. One of, one of the sort of strange things about that, I mean, it was a, tr a trope in letter writing, a sort of secret letter, you would say, burn this letter. Uh, the fact that we know so much about them about burn this letter is because people didn't burn them mm. and they actually, they actually still survive. But what this takes us on to, uh, and that's, the, that's actually the outside. So it's obviously sort of, it's been in the fireplace, yeah. hasn't it? So it's obviously got singed. But this takes us along to um, Father Christmas. That's not um, Father Christmas. The invention of Father Christmas. No, but when you think about our modern associations with Father Christmas coming down a chimney, they are, in fact, a relatively new phenomenon. So we have the sort of serpent-like Grinch uh, here coming down the chimney. Uh, next up should be uh, this wonderful, when I was a child and read this, this sort of, you know, really captured my imagination, this sort of three, this sort of cross-section uh, of the chimneys. He's a very, he's a very grumpy uh, Father Christmas, Raymond Briggs's Father Christmas. Um, um, but it was invented, this tradition was invented in the early 19th century. And we have here uh, Clement Seymour's Twas the Night Before Christmas, uh, which was written in, in 1822 and first published in the New York Sentinel on the 23rd of December 1823. And he described him as a chubby, plump, right jolly old elf and I'll read you he spoke not a word but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose so what you've got there is then this is suddenly Father Christmas is associated with actually coming down chimneys there's an earlier version of this which is Washington Irving uh, in a history uh, Knickerbocker's History of New York, where he talks about St. Nicholas, this is 1812, rattling down the chimney. Um, St. Nicholas had beforehand been associated with chimneys, just not actually coming down them. He would drop, there, I think from about the, 14th, the 4th century onwards, um, he would drop coins down or leave presents in, in shoes uh, or, or, or coins in shoes. And there's a very interesting sort of slippage between the shoe and the stocking. Children nowadays, certainly in, in, in Britain, will, put a, will hang up a stocking. I think in America as well will hang up a stocking. But in other countries around Europe, children will put shoes out instead. My wife, my wife is half Swiss. I think Swiss tradition is to put a shoe there and, 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 it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's filled up. So the invention of 
Father Christmas. But there are earlier prototypes uh, of these sort of... What, what's interesting is connections with beings that come down the chimney associated with winter feasts. So Befana in Italian tradition, she's known as the Christmas witch, this is her, uh, and she would come down the chimney at night and leave gifts and shoes. In Greece and Serbia, the Kalikantseroi are Christmas goblins who apparently would come down the chimney at night on the 12 days of Christmas to wreak havoc. So I think we've, what we've got there is, the sort of, is this sort of, these folklore traditions of the chimney as this sort of supernatural portal into the natural world being Christianized or certainly, certainly not necessarily Christianized, but, but commercialized mm. uh, in, in America, um, and, and Father Christmas sort of appearing. But of course, one of the most interesting parts of history, if you think about people going in and out of chimneys, are real people going oh, I've, I've, in to and be out honest, of chimneys. I, th this was, this, to me, this was, when you think about chimneys, this was one of the most obvious yeah. sort of things to do with chimneys. But I found it, in some ways, one of the most painful. I remember learning about climbing boys when I was at school, you know, very, very, very young. And it was one of the things that I, that I remembered. Uh, you know, there were certain things that I remembered from my childhood as, um, that really sort of peaked, that really sort of stayed in my imagination as a child and really got me interested in history and in understanding history from, from you know, ordinary people's perspective. One was this, the other was the trenches, and the other was slave ships. And I found that, you know, just seared into my imagination. Well, but this is a, seven, six? Well, I mean, you probably... I mean, that the average age of a climbing boy... Because I think the, the thing is that what you've got, what we'd started off with at the beginning, is this sense of chimneys connected to industry, connected to empire. We talked a little bit about the sort of the darker side of chimneys when we looked at the, at the, at the miners. But I think one of the sort of one of the sort of human the, the human casualties of this sort of industrial revolution are the poor kids who went up the chimneys to clean them out. And we're talking about chimneys that are about nine inches square. So you'd need to be what three to seven in order to climb up them. And the descriptions of the conditions that these kids lived in—they were often orphans. They were in the poor house. You know the parish had a duty to basically get people out of the poor houses so that they weren't a burden. And so apprenticing these, these boys, these young boys, to uh, a master sweep, and they were, they, were, they were papers of indenture, so they, you know, they were almost owned by these, by these men. Their life was pretty, was pretty gruesome. Um, in, these, in, these sort of, um, in these very hot, dirty conditions... You know, the, 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 the respiratory problems these kids would have had are just extraordinary. You imagine lighting a chimney, how hot it gets in there, how, how sweaty and small and dirty it is. And these boys, when they went up there, honestly, they, there are descriptions of them just covered in burns. And these, these, these master chimney sweeps, in order to toughen these young kids up, would take them out would put them by a fire or something that was warm and take a stiff brush covered, coated in sort of really strong brine, so a sort of salty liquid, and then paint, paint it on their, on their bruises in order, to, in order to toughen them up. You know, I mean, they're, they're, and, you know they, would be, they would be apprentices for about seven years. If you, if you flick on, Sam, there's a... There's a sort of a, there are lots of there's there's an awful lot of documentary <coughs> evidence that survives. I mean, the p Parliament get involved. There are all sorts of committees. William Blake, in his Songs of Innocence and Experience, is writing about the plight of chimney chimney sweeps. Go to the British Library website. There is an incredible uh, archive. If we if we flip on, you get the you you come to this. These I can't emphasise how enough how tight. These chimneys are. Imagine coming up this little one here with a bend in. And what would happen? These were so tight that these boys would be up there and they would often get stuck because their knees would come up and stick on their chests. And 
they would, um, and if they got stuck, they would either be pulled out or some, a, another boy would be sent up with pins to prick them in their feet so that they would go Wiggle. up or burnt straw. And there is, there's something I just want to share with you. I read, I was reading through this. This comes from Henry Mayhew's. Henry Mayhew is a social commentator and he collected all sorts of, 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 um, sort of, of sort of snippets of parliamentary records that deal with the social ills. And it, it's the most touching account. I was reading this on the train up here uh, today, and it's an account of a death of a chimney sweeps boy. It's evidence given before the Parliamentary Committee on Climbing Boys in 1817. On Sunday morning, 29th of March, 1813, a chimney sweeper of the name of Griggs attended to sweep a small chimney in the brew house of Messrs. Calvert & Co. in Upper Thames Street. He was accompanied by one of his boys, a lad of about eight years of age, of the name of Thomas Pitt, probably a name that the master had given him. The fire had been lighted as early as two o'clock the same morning and was burning on the arrival of Griggs and his little boy at eight. The fireplace was small and an iron pipe projected from the grate some little way into the flue. This the master was acquainted with, having swept the chimneys in the brew house for some years, and therefore had a tile or two broken from the roof in order that the boy might descend the chimney. He had no sooner extinguished the fire than he suffered the lad to go down, and the consequences might be expected was his almost immediate death in a state, no doubt, of inexpressible agony. The flue was of the narrowest description and must have retained heat sufficient to have prevented the child's return to the top, even supposing he had not approached the pipe belonging to the grate, which must have been nearly red hot. This, however, was not clearly ascertained on the inquest, though the appearance of the body would induce an opinion that he had been unavoidedly pressed against the pipe. Soon after his ascent, the master who remained on the top was apprehensive that something had happened and therefore desired him to come up. The answer of the boy, and this is so heartbreaking, I cannot come up, master, I must die here. An alarm was given in the brew house immediately that he was stuck in the chimney and a bricklayer who was at work near the spot attended and after knocking down part of the brickwork of the chimney just above the fireplace made a hole sufficiently large to draw him through. A surgeon attended but all attempts to restore life were ineffectual. On inspecting the body various burns appeared. The fleshy part of his legs and a great part of the feet more particularly were injured. Those parts, too, by which climbing boys most effectually ascend or descend chimneys, viz. the elbows and knees, seem burnt to the bone, from which it must be evident that the unhappy sufferer made some attempts to return as soon as the horrors of his situation became apparent. I mean, this is... <laughs> I'm speechless at reading something like that. Um, I think what it does is it takes you back to a... It takes you back to a time of history that is so different from our own, so different from our own, a time of, you know, if you think of, and this connects us to the history of childhood, but we haven't done the history of childhood, but you think about the way in which we sort of, we think about the child today, the child as a figure about childhood innocence, you know, and the way in which we want to protect our children. Um, you think about the, you know, the, the, the post-World War II, the development of the welfare state, the structures that are in place to protect people, to protect children. And you go back to the sort of 19th century and you see, you know, we've talked today about 95% about of young people in the southwest working in the tin mines. You know, people like this working in, in the chimneys. And the, the history of childhood has, you know, over that sort of 100 or so years has drastically changed. Um, I mean, it's something that's absolutely fascinating. It has, and it just shows you how we can, you know, really unpack the history of the chimney and go in all sorts of directions, some of them more attractive than others yeah. uh, for, for us and in our modern world. Um, and I think one of the final points to make is that we can then leap off from chimneys, we can go to childhood, or we can do something that I've um, 
recently been writing about, which is the history of boxes. I've been writing about the history of boxes for people. Yep. I've been writing about the history of coffins. And one of the things that was invented in the 18th century was the safety coffin. And it's all to do with the fear of being buried alive, which has a history, Abuse. believe it or not. Yep. In the 19th century, they established in London the Society for the Prevention of Premature Burial. It properly existed. And that, of course, is all to do with our understanding of modern medicine. How would you actually identify if someone is dead or not? So It's also related to the history of beards, <laughs> chimneys, that I, that I talked Shut about. I, no, no, no. I, I said that it was related to the history of beards. I mean, because one of the... Th we're, gonna, we're going to Budley Salterton on Sunday, and we're going to talk about... You, you don't tell anyone. This won't come out before that. We're going to talk about dust. And one of the things that chimneys create is a lot of dust. And one of the recommendations of a parliamentary committee was in order to prevent inhalation of too much noxious dust was that you grow a beard because a beard was seen as, a, as nature's filter to filter out the noxious substances of dust. Well, there smoke. we go. That is our history of the unexpected. It is the unexpected history of chimneys. I very much hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. 